In honor of Baby Loss Awareness Week I'm creating this mega post. It's a long post, because there's a lot to say. Miscarriage is important to talk about, but can be very upsetting as well. If you are not in the right place to read this today, or might find it triggering, check out one of my other posts instead, maybe this mid-year reading roundup. I want to preface this by highlighting that this post speaks to my experience only, and that of a few friends who have also been through miscarriage. Each person has different things to deal with when they miscarry. I am a white wealthy woman with a strong support network, sensory processing disorder, dyspraxia, and a Christian faith. With all those disclaimers out of the way, approach this post however best serves you, as the person experiencing a miscarriage, or someone supporting them. These are the headings I'll be speaking on today, my story, what is helpful, what is not helpful, and what surprised me. If you've had a miscarriage, I'm so sorry. I hope that some of what follows makes you feel seen, and gives you some ideas about how to be kind to yourself in such a horrible time. Take what serves you and throw the rest away, and reach out on Instagram if you want to talk. If you're supporting a miscarrying friend, or just looking for information, thank you for taking the time to approach this topic with sensitivity. My story. The day I found out. On the 19th May, I woke up feeling more tired than usual. I had been trying to get pregnant for six months. Having slightly given up by this point, and eager to have a beer at a barbecue later that evening, I took a pregnancy test. I stared at the faint line, disbelieving. Was this a faulty test? My husband assured me that no, there was no mistake. We were going to have a baby. I kept the test close by all day, checking every five minutes that it really was true. Feeling sick immediately, and with a household of guests arriving imminently, I let a few people know we were expecting. I had considered the possibility of miscarriage whilst trying, and had decided that I would want support around me if that happened, and that I was not a person who could keep a pregnancy secret. My best friend and I quickly googled the due date, late January. My baby would be only six months younger than hers. I was so excited. She helped me plan how and when I would tell all the important people in my life. Something I had dreamed about whilst trying was telling my parents, my nan, and my husband's parents, and I was bursting with my news. My limited palate in pregnancy. As the days passed, I felt more and more sick every day. My husband bought every type of ginger beer he could find, and we taste-tested each one, trying to find one the baby liked. My sensory issues, always a nuisance, reduced the variety of food I could eat considerably, but I reassured myself it would not be for long, and it would all be worth it for the baby. I had cravings for salt, pulling sensations in my uterus, and was sure I could feel the baby burrowing in on the top right-hand side. I had done more tests, and was now certain that there was indeed a little life growing inside of me. Telling my parents we were pregnant was everything I hoped it would be, and a very special memory for me still. We slowly let our friends know, and while some felt it was strange we were letting them know so early, we were comfortable with the decision. I spent time with my godchildren and marveled that soon I would have a child in my life that I loved even more than them. Between the medical admin of the midwife forms and trying to get some food inside me, and dreaming about the future, my days felt very full. And then, slowly at first, but with gathering speed, things started feeling wrong. On the 2nd of June I felt less sick than I had previously, and then there was spotting. It's important to state at this point that symptoms come and go in pregnancy, and spotting, even a lot of spotting, is also common in a healthy pregnancy. These symptoms were not necessarily cause for concern, but concerned I was. 
The next few days passed in a hell of symptom spotting, talking to midwives and doctors who couldn't give me any answers, before eventually, that Friday night, I went to A&E. I was so tired of the uncertainty, and perhaps naively believed that I would get an answer. Despite increased bleeding, after a five-hour wait, there were no answers. The A&E department didn't have an internal scanner to check on the baby, and so they sent me home after booking me in to see the early pregnancy unit on Monday morning. We got home at midnight and went straight to sleep. At 5 a.m. I heard a massive crash from our bathroom. My husband, who had had his COVID vaccine the day before, had collapsed. He came round, shivering and feverish, and an ambulance was sent to pick him up and take him to hospital to check his heart. He's fine now. Knowing I couldn't be alone, I called a friend whom I knew was likely to be awake with his small children, and spent a few hours at their house, calling private pregnancy scan places and trying to find an appointment whilst texting my husband for updates on his scans. Eventually I was successful and managed to arrange to go to a scan with my mom-in-law just before lunchtime. Walking in, knowing I was about to hear that the baby had died, I did my best to ignore the despair of it all and focus on getting an answer. In a detached sort of way, I noted that this would be a really lovely place to meet your baby for the first time. The room was dark, safe feeling, with screens on every wall for looking at the baby. My favorite picture of the baby. The nurse inserted the probe, and I waited for her to tell me the bad news. Instead, she showed me a healthy egg sac with a six-week fetus developing as planned inside. My detachment left me and I cried, so surprised and so happy to see my baby alive and well. My husband let me know he could be picked up in an hour, and I went for lunch with my mom-in-law, where I tried to eat a burger which tasted like soil and peas which tasted like blood before giving up and just eating all the fries. My symptoms seemed to have returned. I did my best to believe the baby was fine, and dismissed the unease that something was wrong. I knew that on Monday I would see the baby again, and I looked at the scan photo in the meantime. They had found the baby where I had expected, in the top right of my uterus. On Monday, we repeated the process, this time with the NHS. This time they could find the egg sac, but we couldn't see the fetus developing inside. There are many rationalizations at this point. Perhaps their scanning equipment is less precise than the private sector? Perhaps it's just the position of my uterus today? I saw the midwife to interpret the results, and she assured me she was 99% positive this was a healthy pregnancy. She took blood from me to confirm this and rang me at 5 p.m. to deliver the results. As I expected, these results were not good. She told me that my HCG levels had dropped, and that I would almost certainly miscarry. I remember feeling a great sense of relief as I comforted my husband after that phone call. I wouldn't have to convince anyone that something was wrong anymore, and there was now certainty. What I didn't know at that point was that miscarriages often take quite a long time to happen, can be stop-start and might need medical intervention to start them off. My contractions started in earnest four days later, followed by a large volume of blood, and then part of the egg sac. If, like me, you were googling to find out what the egg sac would look and feel like, the major difference from the rest of the blood and clots is that it is whitish-yellow under the blood and feels spongy. Looking down at the egg sac on the tissue paper, I felt grief for the life that had been cut short before it could even really develop. I felt a strong connection to this piece of tissue, a part of my baby, and I felt grateful to have been part of its life, however short. I prayed and was grateful, and then, knowing that there was no sanitary way to keep the sack, I put it into the toilet and said goodbye. A week of pain later, 
I was grateful that my miscarriage experience had been fairly quick. I had been given cocodamol for the pain, which I used liberally, although I also found that the discomfort I was in helped me process my emotional pain. My follow-up scan revealed I had, in fact, not fully miscarried, and there was still tissue left. After speaking with a nurse, I decided to try some medication to help my body complete the miscarriage. This did not go well. My body seemed to ignore the medication completely, and the medication itself was uncomfortable to insert. Most people find the medication extremely effective and easy to use, and I was an exception. After two stressful attempts at the medication, and lying awake at night praying for period cramps, I decided to take a break from trying to miscarry. I wanted to leave the limbo of carrying a baby that had already died. At that point, I felt a strong desire not only to get pregnant again as soon as possible but also a craving for normal life, which I felt prevented from as the cramps and pain could re-emerge at any time. In the end, I chose to go back to as much of a normal life as I could manage, and let go of control of trying to start the miscarriage off again. This was very difficult, as I found it very hard to fight off my increased anxiety. I didn't want to escalate the medical intervention, which would be either a day stay in hospital, not a good environment for someone with my sensory disabilities, or a D&C, which terrified me because it involved general anesthetic and a small chance of uterine scarring. I was incredibly fortunate to have a second bout of bleeding and more tissue not long after, and whilst the follow-up scan showed there was still a small amount of tissue retained in my uterus, the midwife was fairly sure this would come out with my next period. I then began the grueling process of taking a pregnancy test every day and hoping for a negative, which anyone who has tried to conceive will tell you is counterintuitive and upsetting. The test laughs at you with its little pink line, you're still pregnant, but there's no baby. Finally, six weeks later, after a very long walk, I came home to find that the last piece of tissue had left my body. I felt a great sense of peace looking at the final bit of egg sac, thanked it for being my baby, and once again said goodbye. What is helpful? Whilst I had acknowledged and tried to prepare for a miscarriage whilst trying to get pregnant, nothing totally prepares you for being thrown in the deep end of loss. As I manically tried to teach myself to swim in these choppy waters, these were the things I found most helpful. Support Network I was extremely fortunate to be able to call on a variety of excellent people for practical support, prayer, and processing. One thing I learned which may feel obvious is that different people are best for different support. Some of my friends were exactly the right people to send memes and pictures of their days for distraction. A small group of church friends joined a WhatsApp group and prayed for me, the baby, and my husband at each twist and turn of my story. This group of 15 ensured that I felt covered in prayer at all times and loved from afar, which was something I desperately needed. Others had had miscarriages before, and I found that infrequent but deep chats with them were most helpful, as these conversations with people who got it helped me to make progress, but were very draining. I made the choice to share that I had had a miscarriage publicly, partially because I felt there was no reason not to, but also because I didn't want to have to keep delivering bad news to people repeatedly. However widely you choose to share your experience, there are pros and cons. In sharing publicly, I found some people said the wrong thing, and that a few people sent accidentally intrusive messages, but this was hugely outweighed by the support and understanding I received, and the hard conversations I avoided. My first experience of being in a room of people who knew me, but didn't know I'd had a miscarriage, was oddly suffocating, and I found it incredibly difficult to answer the light small talk question so how have you been? Taking time to grieve. 
Once I had been through the first stage of my miscarriage, I felt stuck. I had dealt with a physical situation, but what was I to do now? Unlike the death of a living person, there's no standard formula to process the grief of miscarriage. I reached out to a few friends and decided that a small retreat to honor and mourn the baby was what I wanted to do. Some people plant a tree or flower in their gardens to remember the life that was lost, but I had decided that wasn't for me, because I don't like either of those things. Journaling in Bournemouth My friend Sarah asked me what I wanted, which was very helpful. I knew I wanted to tell the story of my baby, and I knew I wanted to find a safe space away from where I lived to feel my feelings. She helped me to decide to go on a small retreat to Bournemouth, and there I filled a baby journal sitting on the beach watching the sea. I added this journal to a box with ultrasound photos, some sand from the beach, a baby grow, and my mom added a hat she had crocheted. This box was also a good place for the cards people sent me to say sorry for our loss. Knowing what to do with the box is rather difficult. Initially, I felt I didn't want it in the house, I didn't want the aura of the box to keep reminding me of what had happened. A friend volunteered to keep the box safe for me until I wanted it back, but as I came to terms with what happened, the box felt less sad, then neutral, and finally precious. I have decided that any future babies will also get a box of their own. My husband and our families enjoyed looking through the box, and I found it a nice way to include people in being grateful for and mourning our baby. I was very fortunate that the retreat center I went to had a pastoral team who had been chaplains in a hospital and had experience with baby loss. I sat with them and told the story above, and together we prayed and thanked God for the baby. It was a very peaceful experience, and it was valuable to have the very short life honored. People who say the right things. I was surprised that people are a lot less terrible at this than I thought. Here are some of the specific words that helped me, with a caveat that these people knew me well and used their common sense of when these words were appropriate. It's really shit isn't it? It's so sad and so unfair. Because it really is. There's a temptation to try to fix but you can't skip the sad part, and to a certain extent, it is always there. The acknowledgement of this is helpful. Dark humor, use with caution. For me, this just takes so much of the sting out of things. It communicates that what happened isn't taboo, and whilst it's terrible, there's still joy. Use this technique wisely, and only with incredibly close friends whom you know will appreciate it. If you're not sure whether to make the joke, don't. Trigger warnings and heads ups. Lots of my friends were pregnant or had newborns when I lost my baby. Two of the best messages I received were Greater than I'm sorry that you're having to process this, you are in my thoughts and prayers. I understand 100% if you need some space, don't even worry for a second about the baby shower, I won't take any offense or take it personally if you need a bit of distance from me at the moment. I love you guys no matter what, we share your sadness, we share your hopefulness. When you feel the time is right, get in touch, I'll let you drive the situation. Greater than. Greater than text from a pregnant friend about her baby shower. Greater than if at any point it's hard for me to mention my baby, I'm happy not to. Greater than. Greater than text from a friend as part of a long text exchange. What's perfect about messages like this is firstly they are messages, there's no impetus for me to respond immediately, I can have some big feelings in private if I need to. Second, they acknowledge the situation clearly and directly. Third, they put me in control of the situation. I can make the choice about how I'm feeling, and I don't have to miss out on the fun of my friends' lives because they are walking on eggshells. My experience differed from many I have read.
I valued the role I could play as Andy Flick and Godmum, and I felt no jealousy about my friends' pregnancies. For me, as they weren't my baby, I felt no resentment. However, I excused myself from baby shower events, as I didn't want to pull focus from the expectant mums or add any worry or guilt to their celebration. Therapy If you have the chance to talk to a professional, it makes sense to go for it. Support from a completely neutral person was valuable to me and affirmed my feelings. I felt the need to check I was grieving correctly, which is slightly ridiculous, but the peace of mind I gained from knowing I was on a right track was reassuring. What is not helpful? People saying the wrong thing. Oof, I wish this wasn't such a long section. Let's take each phrase one by one and examine why it's less helpful than it appears. It wasn't a baby yet, just a fetus at least you weren't further along it could have been worse. These phrases undermine the seriousness of the grief. They will not cheer me up. I will not find comfort in knowing other people go through harder experiences. This is not the time to tell me when you believe life begins. Affirm the experience of the person suffering and listen to them. Don't find a silver lining. It's still a big gray cloud. Well, there's always next time you'll get pregnant again there's always adoption. If you say these things, you are jumping the gun in a graceless way. These sentences imply I am sad because I am not yet a mother, rather than because I lost someone I felt a connection with and will now never meet. Imagine learning someone's fiancé had died, then saying, Ah well, you'll meet someone else and marry them, and then you'll be married. Or have you tried internet dating? My friend met someone on Tinder and married them. Insensitive, and a big red flag to me to stop talking about this with you. This baby's life is a separate thing from the life of any other children I may have and they are not someone I can replace. Why did it happen? Often, people hear about a tragedy, and in order to impose control they search for a reason. Can a person be blamed? Perhaps an illness? The truth is that horrible things happen all the time to good people with no discernible cause. It's fair that on hearing horrible news you may want answers about why, but it's not appropriate to have this conversation with the person it happened to. If they want to talk about why it happened, in the unlikely event they know, they will tell you without you having to ask. Everything happens for a reason. The other side of the coin. I believe this to be true to a certain extent, but a grief-bound person is very unlikely to find this helpful. In the middle of grief, I felt what could be worth the life of my baby? If you're coming from a Christian standpoint, this is the verse to guide you in this situation. Greater than rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Greater than. Greater than Romans 12 5. Vague language your, situation your tummy what's been going on with you guys. I really understand where this impulse comes from. We don't want to hurt each other, and so we don't mention the big bad thing that happened. However, inside my head, it's never not real. When people, including medical professionals, used vague language, it really increased the taboo feeling around miscarriage. Friends who followed my lead and used the words womb miscarriage lost your baby when your baby died were so helpful. As they spoke these words, I felt them saying it happened, it was awful, you are not alone. Miscarriage is a sign your body is working you'll experience an increase in fertility after loss. Unless you are a medical professional, steer clear of these phrases. This is another search for a silver lining, and these phrases put pressure on me to buck up, because it's not so bad. Knowing I would experience an increase in fertility, and hearing that several times added extra pressure to the urges from my hormonal brain to try again immediately, something that would have been damaging for my family. Uninvited advice. 
Only give advice when specifically asked. If in doubt, you can ask are you asking for advice? I did need advice during the process many times, and I rang the people who said I could ring them if I needed and I asked them questions. Is it normal that I feel so grumpy? Yes, is it silly to want to process this all at the seaside? No, am I weird for missing the feeling of morning sickness? Yes, but it's common. Unsolicited advice is often given out of a place of love. We see the person hurting and once again, we want to fix it. As much as I wish it wasn't the case, there are no shortcuts to grief. Some words are a bomb to a broken heart, but the healing is long and slow. At their best, well-chosen words of love are a brief respite from the pain of loss, and at worst advice implies that the person would be less sad if they pulled themselves together and did X or Y. In real life, if you suggest a nice walk in the sunshine might help me, I'm assigning you 20 push-ups. Ignoring it. As a person having a miscarriage, there's only one wrong way to grieve, and that's to ignore it. Try it and you will find that the tears you suppress leak out into the places you use to find joy, leaving you bewildered and empty. If you don't have access to a supportive network in the UK you can talk to someone else who has gone through miscarriage on 01924-200799. Choosing traditions and structures for grief can feel weird, pointless, or silly. But humans need traditions and structures to make some sense of the incomprehensible, and however you process is valuable and fair, if you are doing no damage to yourself or others. What surprised me aka everything you never knew about miscarriage? Miscarriage is not an emergency. Emotionally, it certainly feels it, but there's nothing that can be done to prevent a miscarriage. So if you arrive at A and E with miscarriage symptoms, you will not be highly prioritized unless your symptoms suggest an ectopic pregnancy. However, once you're certainly miscarrying, NHS staff will be extra nice to you, and even the gatekeeping receptionists will do what they can to ease your burdens. There aren't many answers to be had. Why did I miscarry? When will my miscarriage start? Has the miscarriage finished? These were all questions I would have really enjoyed an answer to, but the only one to be had is we don't know, but this is the most likely outcome. I was incredibly persistent and got many more scans than I was really due, and they gave me very little information. My ability to trust God and rely on His timing was severely tested, and I don't think I passed that test very well. In hindsight I would tell myself to breathe and wait, but I found comfort in pursuing all options for information, and it was the best I could do at the time. 1 in 4 pregnancies end in miscarriage. If, like me, you thought it was 1 in 4 people will experience miscarriage, read that again. 1 in 4 pregnancies. You likely know several people who have experienced baby loss. My body changed permanently. Apparently, early pregnancy hit me like a train. I'm a different shape and have lots of extra stretch marks now. I wouldn't change this, but it was a surprise to me that your body can change so much and so quickly. Having a miscarriage is really tiring. This makes sense, but I had absolutely no idea. I was exhausted from the week I got pregnant till two months after the miscarriage. I thought it was my fault. I would never tell someone else they had caused the loss of their baby. Logically, I don't see any reason it could be my fault but I felt guilt at losing my baby. I felt I had let them down. If you feel the same, hear this, it is not your fault. You carried your baby for as long as they needed you to, and you did a great job. My faith took a beating. Perhaps arrogantly, before miscarriage, I thought I was resilient enough to withstand horrible things without it shaping my view of God. 
Plenty of painful things have happened to me, and I have found God and sought His face despite them. I have seen the truth of Romans 8:28, that He uses all things for good for those that love Him according to His purposes. But after miscarriage, God could have raised my baby from the dead inside my womb, and He didn't, even though I asked, my family asked, my church asked. How can I trust Him to be kind to me? These dark theological waters have no easy homily to shine a light inside them. I am still swimming in the deep. All I can tell you is what God has told me. Once on a walk in the park, a thought dropped into my head from nowhere, and once at a prayer meeting, in a prophetic word from someone else. Taste and see that I am good. I don't know what this looks like exactly, but I know that all I have to do right now is wait for God to bring me things that taste good and trust Him enough to take a bite.